I say often that without hope there won't be a revolution because people are just more likely to fight battles that they believe that they have a chance of winning, right? Yeah. And we get the idea that we have a chance of winning by our memory, right? Like hope is very much connected to memory. So we know that if the people have done it before, the people can probably do it again, possibly do it again. Right. Yeah. And it's based on that possibility that we fight. You're listening to season six of Upside Down Podcast. This is Lindsay Wallace. I'm Kayla Craig. I'm Patty Taylor. And I'm Elisa Molina. Upside Down Podcast is an ecumenical conversation at the intersection of justice, spirituality, and culture. And we have created this space with you in mind. So join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 102 of Upside Down Podcast. I'm Lindsay Wallace, your host for today's episode. Show notes can be found on Instagram at Upside Down Podcast, and it would be so kind of you to help new listeners find us by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing our show. If you're able to support financially at any amount, head over to patreon.com slash upside down podcast. And now I get the honor of introducing today's guest, Andre Henry. Andre is an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter and podcast, Open Hard Pills. He's a student of nonviolent struggle, having organized protests in Los Angeles, where he lives, and studied under international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. His work in pursuit of racial justice has been featured in The New Yorker, The Nation, and on The Liturgist Podcast. His first book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives comes out today. So Andre, welcome and huge congratulations on your book. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we've been exploring persistence this season and we know that the people need hope and personally I need some hope as well and that's one of the best things about being a podcaster is I get to have conversations with people um, and get my needs met and then record them for others. So you were at the top of the list We started talking about who could talk to us about persisting in hope. So let's start with what does hope look like and maybe what does hope feel like for you right now? Yeah, for sure. So one thing that I've been saying about hope for a long time is um, hope is more of a a habit or a practice, you know, than a feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned that years ago when I started doing the work of trying to use my music and my writing to talk more about racial justice and got more involved with local community organizing efforts. I was studying a lot about this, about systemic racism in America. And, um, you know, when you're looking at all that injustice and you're paying attention to the news and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's hard to, Mm -hmm. to have a, a positive outlook. And I just didn't feel like hope, was possible to have like doing the work was important but i didn't feel like hope was possible because most of the people that i knew well first off i was conflating hope and optimism and most of the optimists that i knew didn't seem to really be paying attention Mm -hmm. to the news right and uh, a friend of mine sent me a book by rebecca solnit called hope in the dark and you know who 
if you know people who are listening, if you've never read this book, this is an excellent book on hope. And Rebecca Sonnet was the first author who really challenged the idea for me that hope is an emotion that pops up spontaneously or, you know, just in response to what's going on or, you know, just this conviction for no particular reason that everything's going to be okay. But instead that, Mm -hmm. that hope is something that we can, well, hope depends on uncertainty. That was the big thing for me that she said was hope was about not knowing what the future holds and knowing that your actions can, um, affect the future, you know, that you can kind of create the future, that that human actions create the future. And that got me thinking, well, that, well, just that book alone made me say, oh my gosh, I need to make sure that I always am reading something about hope. And, uh, I, I've tried to do that for, for several years, always have a book that I'm reading that is just, whether it's essays from someone that I admire or, you know, a book like Rebecca Saunders that I mentioned that I'm always reading something and feeding myself um, stories from history of ordinary people fighting oppression and winning so that I can keep on reminding myself of what is possible, right? If we Mm -hmm. we work together. Yeah. Yeah. You're jumping ahead because I'm definitely going to ask you about some of your hope, um, you call it, you talk about your hope regimen in the book mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about that for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned how like after the election of Donald Trump and what seemed like the U S had ignored the black lives matter movement, that hope yeah. just felt like BS. Yes. Um, yeah. And that, that idea of hope as a practice pulling us out of that mm-hmm. um, is really meaningful. Something else that you say, I think I pulled this from your newsletter, is hope isn't about what's likely, but about what's possible. Yes. Yeah. And you touched on this a little bit, but the possible is often a world that none of us have seen, right? So when yeah. we think about abolition or a United States that doesn't operate in a system of racial capitalism, sure. or even just a world where everyone's dignity is honored, we've not actually lived in that world. Yeah. So what would you say is the role of the artist in showing us hope, showing us what that world can look like, walking us towards it. For sure. And I think that, you know, artists, because, you know, there are so many disciplines of art, right? So there's so many ways that different artists and different disciplines can help with this. But I feel like art deals with emotion. It deals with imagination. It deals with creativity and all of these things are important to social justice, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or to a better world. First off, you know, it seems like the goal of empire to gut us of passion. Right. Mm -hmm. And and this is something we the people who are uh, freedom fighters, you know, are dealing with this often because what are we trying to do? We're trying to break through the apathy, the literally without passion, (laughs) you know, or lack of passion that exist in society around these injustices, right? So um, that's one, like, so that's the emotion. And and artists, you know, we're painting and we're writing songs and we're creating dance and all these kinds of things that appeal to emotion, right? We're appealing to people to wake up. Um, But like you said, like, we've never lived in a world outside of racial capitalism. It's the only world that we know. And the only way for us to, 
you know, do something outside of that is to use our imaginations first. We have to envision what kind of world we want to live in. Yeah. Right. And we have to experiment, you know, myself as a musician, you know, I know like in just as a discipline, like with what I'm doing, there's a lot of improvisation, like that's essential, Mm. (laughs) you know, in music. And that's also what we have to do in society. Right. And um, the creativity is also another part of that that I mentioned, because and you see this in street protests. Right. Like um, one of my favorite examples. I mean, there's so many, but um, one of my favorite examples of resistance is from Extinction Rebellion, who uh, they they flew drones out onto the the runways at, at an airport to stop, to keep planes grounded, you know, <laughs> um, to keep the planes from taking off. Another action that they did was more of a symbolic action with <clears throat> some young, some young folks in, in Europe. I can't remember which country, but they built a gallows and they were standing there with these nooses around their necks and they were standing on tops of blocks of ice to mm. show like to show, to, you know, to send this message about what, uh, our 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 ways of consumption are doing to the environment. And so I tell these mm-hmm. stories to say that artists can play so many roles. They can play the role of the messenger, like 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 those students I was just talking about. Um, they can play the role of creative strategists, you know, because you know, I often find that in meetings that I'm in with with other activists, when we're talking about what tactics should we do, what action should we do, that um, a lot of people only are thinking of of rallies, marches, yeah. things like that, that they've seen before. And mm-hmm. artists who are used to thinking outside the box can really, you know, offer their out of the box thinking to some of these conversations and the skills that they yeah. have for some of the materials they might need. Yeah. Um, graphic designers and, you know, People who can uh, Extinction Rebellion is really good at this. I'm going to probably keep mentioning them because uh, I was at another action where we were protesting Chase Bank and literally like getting people to cut up their Chase Bank cards because the big banks are behind a lot of these, you know, things that they, they fund a lot of the the injustices in the world. And yeah. um, they had this huge snake that they made out of something like all oh, these people were carrying this snake that represented oil and it's just moving mm-hmm. around the plaza of this bank. Uh, but then also there's the role of just keeping the morale up and re- yeah. communicating the values of the movement to the broader public or to the movement itself. Um, the freedom songs come to mind of the civil rights movement and Dr. King in his book, why we can't wait talked about how the freedom songs were the role were the soul of the movement that's how, that's what he said was that the freedom songs were the soul of the movement because you know when these students would sing something like ain't gonna let nobody turn me around like they would literally go and stand in front of police lines and get carried off to jail uh Showing that, you know, they weren't just singing those words, you know, and right. singing keep their spirits right. up. So I could go on and on and on and on and on. Last thing I'll say about about artists, too, is that I'm actually um, I actually think about I think often. Sorry, I think often about how many of the people that we revere in the genealogy of nonviolent struggle, nonviolent resistance were either artists themselves or deeply impacted by art. You know, mm. uh, 
Gandhi talks about the role of poetry and drama, you know, on his formation of his um, his his uh, philosophy of nonviolence. Uh, one of my friends and mentors, Sergei Popovich, who led the revolution to overthrow Slobodan Milosevic, he was a bass player in a rock band, you know, and mm. he got into <laughs> he got into activism because he saw a band in Serbia. Um, careening through a public square on the back of a flatbed truck, singing songs, singing anti-war songs, and they 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 one of the songs said, "If we're if we're so busy fighting the war, when will we find time to have sex?" That was the song, and <laughs> and Serja looked at that, and he, the lesson that it had for him was that activism can be fun and that's how he ended up joining or starting the movement that overthrew the dictator so all that to say art has art and artists have such a major role to play in changing the world yeah i love that so you i think it's in your twitter bio say that you're an artivist and i wonder is there a moment for you or like what happened for you to shift from saying i'm an activist to really claiming I'm an artivist. I think you probably touched on it a little bit just now in terms of how integral it is to yeah. the movement and moving us forward. But Yeah. Well, I wrote about this in my book that, honestly, the first thing anyone called me close to an activist was an artivist in 2016 hmm. because this is how my work started. You know, um, I've been a singer-songwriter for, you know, most of my life. And um, when I was provoked into the movement, I asked myself, what can I do? What do I have? And I had music. And so I started, you know, writing songs about social justice instead of just my love life, which, thank God, because (laughs) my love life is terrible. Um, um, So I started writing songs about social justice. And... I also started lugging a hundred pound boulder around Los Angeles. And I, I lugged that boulder everywhere that I went. And one of the places was to the hotel cafe in Los Angeles. It's a famous, you know, uh, club lounge, music venue, whatever you want to call it. Sarah Bareilles got their start there. All, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. And I lugged that, that thing into the green room one day. And, um, I was also wearing this suit that had the names of police victims all over the jacket. And, there was a Black Lives Matter activist there uh, in the green room uh, who they were a, a, they were a part the partner of my good friend. <laughs> and they said, so you're like an artist now. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling really, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember feeling really honored that, you know, this person who was so, so into the movement looked at me and basically said, you're doing legitimate movement work, right? But what happened was, first off, I don't like words like this at all. I don't like, Mm. you know, some people call themselves edutainers. And I'm like, ew, I hate (laughs) these kinds of words. But, um, and so I never really took it on. I I just continued to do what I was doing. And then eventually I felt comfortable calling myself an activist um, but I didn't like the term artivist, but the reason why I've, I've pulled it back into 
a way to describe myself, even though I don't like the term, is because it helps other people understand, you know, what, mm-hmm. you know, it helps other people understand what I do uh, because for so many people, they don't see these things as being connected, right? Like for m- many people, art is just for entertainment and there's nothing wrong with entertainment. I, li- I like entertainment. I, I like to be, in it. I like being an entertainer. Um, but I pulled it back in because it helps people to understand a bit better that like the work that I do and the thing that I want to see in the world isn't separate from, you know, Mm -hmm. my life as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that gives me hope is this idea that it only takes three and a half percent. Mm hmm. Um, and Drew Hart was on last year and we, he talked a little bit about this in his book, Who Will Be a Witness. But I wonder if you could talk to us about that idea as well. Um, you were talking about this on Instagram the other day in terms of your book being in all these different venues where people can buy it, where they haven't yeah. been exposed to these ideas before. And so mm-hmm. can you just talk to us about the three and a half percent? And because that gives me hope. <laughs> that yeah. number gives me yeah. hope. For sure. So you know, there was this massive study by Erica Chenoweth and Maria J. Stephan that studied 627 conflict situations between the years 1900 and 2019. Um, and they studied armed revolutions and nonviolent revolutions. And while I say that, it's important to note that oftentimes there's no such thing as a purely armed, armed struggle or a purely nonviolent struggle, you know, people throughout society are resisting oppression in a number of different ways at the same time alongside each other. And what they found was that the success rate of nonviolent struggles was twice that of armed struggles. And in the course of that, they also found that no regime had been able to withstand the active sustained resistance of just three and a half percent of the population. Now, I recently talked with Erica Chenoweth (laughs) about this um, because she uh, has released another book called Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. And um, we talked about how this is not formulaic, right? So Mm -hmm. different struggles are going to take different percentages of the population uh, in sustained active resistance. So I don't want anyone to think well, we can just apply this fraction of the population to whatever situation we're in and it'll guarantee victory. Um, But the principle there is that it doesn't take as many people as we think because there's this misconception in society that social progress is only going to be the result of everyone getting on board or the majority of people getting on board. And I find it just as encouraging as you do, I think, that it really only takes a committed minority to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We hear so often it's going to take all of us and, and it's not number one, which is hopeful, but to, you know, your, your, the title of your book is the white friends I couldn't keep. And Mm -hmm. something that you say is I realized the white people I loved would never join the movement for black lives. I had to leave those relationships because movements aren't built with immovable people. Right. So 
there are immovable people, right, in our lives and society. And the reality is, for better or worse, we don't actually need them to be right. on board in order right. for this world that we want to see to come. Right. Um, so I'm going to maybe shift focus a little bit. And that that quote of yours and the title of your book, mm -hmm. I wonder, could you talk a little bit about what you've lost? Because I think there can be a tendency, maybe less so now after 2020 and all of the burnout that we've seen in folks, but like there's this tendency to talk about movement work or solidarity work as being really sexy, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And you can, it's Instagrammable. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that there's a cost to doing this work. Yeah, um, sure. So there's a cost. And then there's also, I have found, and then you talk about this, uh, there's also a lot to be gained. And like, what's the connection to hope there for you? Yeah, I mean, if I understand the question, you know, I write about in my book <clears throat> how, you know, I kept finding myself needing to cut ties with people who oppose the work, you know? And in some ways, as they oppose the work, they're opposing my growth because like France Fanon says that, you know, people who are engaged in, decolon in decolonization struggles or revolutionary struggles, they themselves are transformed in the process, right? Mm -hmm. And... I have found that to be true of myself. I'm not the same person that I was in 2016 when I yeah. said enough is enough. I want to be more involved. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a way I've just described some of the things that I lost and gained, right? Like I lost this sense of um, certainty about the innocence of America, right? Mm -hmm. And with that comes a bit of like, you know, the rose colored gla glasses are off, right? Yeah. I think that, you know, many people have used this analogy, but I think that, you know, the the, the Matrix is a good example of this, where it's like when I, I, I rewatched those movies uh, last between last year and this year a couple of times. Um. The first one's the only one we need to talk about. <laughs> but <laughs> basically, the thing that I think about when I when I watch that movie is how much the post-apocalyptic world that they live in just really sucks, you know? Yeah. And I have even at times <laughs> uh, facetiously said, I'm going to figure out a way to take that blue pill. <laughs> 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 um. I mean, learning to adjust to what you know about the world yeah. is challenging. And there is a sense of peace that is hard won, right? After, yeah. and joy that is hard won after yeah. going through that process of some kind of process of political awakening. Whereas before, I mean, you know, it just wasn't that hard <laughs> to to be at peace <laughs> with things. Yeah, I'll yeah. put it like that. And I lost relationships with people that I really, really care about. You know, um, there were times when I would literally just be in my apartment alone and weep over, you know, friends 
people that I loved that I just that just don't get it and won't get it, right? Because they're just they're just resisting too hard. They're just resisting the information too too hard and I can't fight with them. I have my own journey to go on. But I've gained, you know, new friends. I've gained new community. I've gained hope for change. I've gained clarity about change. I've um I've gained more space for myself, you know, to be and to discover and explore who I really am and not just who people want me to be based on the the common sense that has been handed down to them by empire, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think when we talk about sort of walking away from relationships, there's sort of this sense that, I don't know. And just in relation to hope, I've been thinking about how it takes a lot of hope to walk away. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that hope for something better can actually be a catalyst, right? For walking away from unhealthy relationships or workplaces or faith communities. Um, Right. And you know, like I didn't know what to expect in walking away. Mm -hmm. You know, they, um, I didn't know that I would find, you know, new community the way that I have when I said I can't do this, but I knew that that was necessary, right? Like I can't mm-hmm. continue to be gaslighted about this issue, you know, this problem by yeah. the people who claim to love me. Um, but I'm hoping that people who read this book and find themselves in a similar situation. <clears throat> will will know you know that you won't be alone <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you won't be alone yeah. you join you join a multitude of people who care yeah yeah, yeah. and it's important that's to find those people Listen. Yeah. yeah absolutely that's been my experience too I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the connection between action so actually doing the work to usher in this more livable planet and hope so there's a lot of talk about like, does hope require action or does action require hope, which comes mm-hmm. first? So how would you talk about sort of that interplay between action and hope? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say which, which comes first, but for me, hope is always connected to action, right? Like I, I feel like hope provokes action. Um, mm-hmm. But also that action is, you know, sustained by, by hope. Yeah. Um, I say often that without hope, there won't be a revolution because people are just more likely to fight battles that they believe that they have a chance of winning. Right. Yeah. Um, and we get the idea that we have a chance of winning by our memory, right? Like hope is very much connected to memory. So we know that if the people have done it before, the people can probably do it again, possibly do it again, right? Yeah. And it's based on that possibility that we fight. Or, you know, there's something that signals to us, you know, that this might be a winnable fight, something worth acting on. So for me, I'm just not really interested in 
hope that isn't connected to action because then that just feels like optimism again, right? It's like, yeah. Yeah. all right, well, things are going to work out. What makes you say that? How? <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> How? Yeah. How did you get there? Um, because that just isn't satisfactory to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And it also, it also, I think Rebecca Sonnet said this, it also lets us off the hook. It says, yeah, you know, things yeah. will work themselves out, right? Yeah. But I really do believe that we are the writers of history. We are active agents in this story. And things don't just work themselves out. There are just people who are willing to write the story. You know, a lot of times, like there are people who there are selfish people who are way more willing to write Mm -hmm. the story than Mm -hmm. than others. And if people of goodwill just say things will work out, then they leave the they leave the writing of history to people who are, you know, frankly exploiting labor and, you know, extracting yeah. more from the planet than can be handled. And you, you know, you're leaving you're leaving it up to Yeah, you're leaving it up to greedy, selfish people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're that is just on such a large scale right now in this moment with all of the like attack on attacks on trans people's rights and the voter suppression. Like, there's just so many examples of that right now. Of yeah, things just don't go well on their own. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I really like use the word satisfactory, and I really like that word to sort of think through like. What do I? What am I satisfied with? What am I unsatisfied with? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a helpful framing. Um, so you something that you tweeted last week. Um, you, I think you kind of got pulled into a, a deconstruction conversation that you said you weren't really interested in. Yeah, yeah. being a leader of. Um, but you said you didn't have to deconstruct to believe that God opposes oppression. You've always right. believed that. And I wonder how has your increase in hope affected your faith or like what role has your faith played in this movement towards sustaining hope? Right. Yeah. So just a comment on that, because when people are tagging folks online about the conversation that white people are having about deconstruction, they often tag me and I feel like it's so important to name that like, no, I'm not leading in that conversation on deconstruction. Yeah. You are deconstructing. <laughs> <laughs> and you find something that I said helpful. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, but... But you, I didn't ask to be a leader. Uh, yeah, I'm not... Because I could... Uh, yeah. Like I said, like, I always believed that God cared about justice, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, I'm a black person. I grew up in Atlanta where the legacy of the civil rights movement is very potent there. And, Mm, um, you know, I read the Exodus story and, you know, like all that, you know, all that stuff like that, that was always a part of it. What I didn't know is that white people didn't believe that too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the white Christians that I was around didn't believe that as well. So that's what I found out. So I didn't really have to deconstruct much about God (laughs) around that. I was... (laughs) I just found out that a lot of white Christians are really racist. I didn't know that, you know, yeah. I was giving a lot of people the benefit of the doubt. I was ignorant of that. Mm-hmm. But um, 
it did still affect my faith, though, because I had to reconsider, like, is Christianity just an invention of white people? You know, Mm -hmm. is it just a tool of social control? Because that is how they have used it historically and are still trying to use it now. You know, you know, everything I I can't speak about all white Christians, but, you know, I think it's I think it's true enough to speak in general terms here that you have a lot of white Christians, especially white evangelical Christians who want to. They want to um, preserve the white power structure in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Right. And that's nothing new. So that that has made me have to reconsider things. And in that way, you know, have to just consider, oh, well, maybe maybe the maybe the colonizers religion is just that like it's just a tool for social control. And then now, like, what is the difference between the colonizer's religion and, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to call this. I think Howard Thurman called it the religion of Jesus, right? Which Mm -hmm. is Judaism. (laughs) 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 I mean, in a a very literal sense, (laughs) Jesus was a Jew, right? right? But... You know, what, what is the difference between the colonizers of religion and the faith of Harriet Tubman, the faith of Matt yeah. Turner, the faith of Martin Luther King, the family of yeah. Hanger and all these others, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not something that I have like really solid answers for, but that is the effect of it, right? Is that I was kind of comfortably in this world of multi-ethnic evangelicalism and then learned that, okay, this is just really a white institution with a lot of black and brown faces in it, but not really none of them really have any real, you know, authority in this environment and these institutions, these cultures, they prioritize the needs and desires and all that kind of stuff of white people. Yeah. So, I mean, it has, it has done what I feel like, you know, um, many people in the Bible are doing like, they're just, they're wrestling with all of these questions, you know, and I feel like it's done the same for me. So sometimes uh, my friend William and I, we have these conversations kind of often because he was like, he's like, yeah, white people told you that you can't be a Christian and you believed them. And I was like, yeah, I did. Mm. (laughs) You know, I did. And so like, that is something that I, you know, I still wrestle with to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we talked at the top about sort of your hope regimen, and mm-hmm. you suggest that we treat hope like a habit. Mm-hmm. What are some practices that keep you hoping in the year of our Lord 2022? <laughs> well, I mean, I realized as I was writing about this in the book that my hope regimen really is just, at base level, is just taking good care of myself. You know, yeah. it's you know, there are certain things that I need to do just so that I'm not overwhelmed. So when I'm doing really well, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I mean, it's it's not it's not always as consistent as I would like. But when I'm doing really well, like I don't keep my phone right by my head when I'm sleeping so that when I wake up, the first thing that I do is not, you know, open Twitter or, you know, even my email because the New York Times, the Atlantic, all of them are emailing right, me and right. stuff like that. So. 
Like I, you know, when I'm doing really well, I wake up, I meditate, I have a glass of water with some lime, eat breakfast, you know, do a little exercise, all that stuff. And it's just taking care of me, you know? And then mm-hmm. I take, I spend some time like in what I said, like I like, for me, what makes me hopeful is the stories of ordinary people who have fought oppression and, and won. Mm-hmm. So I read something like that, you know, in the morning or, or from people who were involved in struggles like that, because that makes me feel hopeful. Um, and then like, all right, I'm ready to face the day. Right. So I'll spend a little time, you know, on social media. If I'm really doing, if I'm doing really well, I'll set a timer or, you know, at least decide like I'm going to spend 15 minutes or 30 minutes or even if it's an hour, but I'm not going to like just spend this indefinite time here and get sucked mm-hmm. into all of these different conversations and stuff like that. Yeah. And really like, you know, I could keep going, but really like that is what it looks like for me. Um, but also one thing I would add to that is community is so important. Relationships with other people who share your values and understand is so important. And not just commiserating with people because <laughs> I like sometimes, you know, I get together with people and we see things the same way and we just talk about how bad things are. And then I don't feel great after that, you know, like yeah. now I'm kind of like feeling down. I'm in a funk about it. So not just yeah. doing that, but like doing something fun, you know, or relaxing, you know, just spending time with people like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to throw dance parties a lot in, when I was in Pasadena because I love to DJ. So, you know, mm-hmm. every few months or so, like, I would do a dance party. Or when we were doing, we did a weekly liturgy in response to the killing of J.R. Thomas, you know. And after the liturgy, every Thursday, we would go out to happy hour, you know, and mm-hmm. um, just eat and, and be together. You know, these are all things that I try to incorporate so that I stay sane, you know, and that I'm not yeah. overwhelmed with despair. Yeah. Um, I'm in therapy. I take medication, you know, <laughs> like yeah. these are all things that are helping me. Oh, also I listen to, and this is the last one I'll do, but my hope regimen changed since I wrote the book. Like last summer, what I was doing was in the morning, I'd get up, take a walk, have some tea, uh, listen to reggae music, and read some poetry, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was in Georgia with my family, so I would sit out on the porch and read poetry. And in the mornings, because we there are all these trees that surround the house, they're just tons of birds. There's just so many birds just out there singing, right? Mm. <clears throat> and, you know, just that kind of stuff, these moments of calm, you know, these yeah. moments of of just connecting with myself, you know, my inner self. Those are yeah. things that just help, help me to not fall into despair because if you just think about this system all the time, yeah, that's just not good for your mental health. <laughs> no, yeah, no, not at all. I love the Emma Goldman quote. Well, it's attributed to her. It's not a direct quote, but I, mm-hmm. if, if I don't want to, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Right. Um, yeah, because we need we need that for sure. 
Um, you, you've mentioned this earlier about how, and in the book you say, writings on hope from freedom fighters past and present became your holy text. And you've mentioned a couple of those. Are there other sort of holy texts for you that you could suggest to people listening? Yeah, um, one of my favorite, <clears throat> excuse me, one of my favorite books is called The Impossible Will Take a Little While. It's a collection of essays from, you know, all kinds of people. I mean, there's Mandela um, is in there. Gosh, I'm drawing a blank, but um, but it's folks like that, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, and it's like 50 essays or something like that. So, I mean, you could read one a week and it'd take you a year to get to get mm-hmm. through it. And it's it's worth going through slowly like that, you know, Um that is a big one. Let me peek over my shoulder here. Um, right now I'm reading one called Militant Joy. Uh, mm. I can't remember the authors, but also really great. Uh, it's a really great text and it's really challenging. Like this idea that to be serious about social change, that you have to be this kind of like, um, what is the word? Kind of this hardened, you know, yeah. badass individual, yeah. you know, like, yeah, nah, it's good to have friends and hobbies <laughs> and, you know, silly yeah. things that make you laugh and that you yes. just enjoy doing all that kind of stuff. So yeah, those are a couple that I would mention. That's great. Thanks. Um, okay, well, I want to talk about your book. So who who do you hope reads this book? Who's it for? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I was I wrote this book for people who thought who think like who think I wrote this book for people. I wrote this for myself, really, like myself eight years ago. Right. Yeah. And people who think like that, Andre. Mm. Um because even though I knew racism was an issue, I knew it was a problem, I knew I'd experienced it, I didn't really understand the systemic part and the political interventions that are necessary to alleviate the problem. And in many ways, I thought about the problem like many uninformed white people do. And so I wrote this book for, for black people. I, I, was especially, I was especially thinking of black men because I do mm-hmm. think that black men are more susceptible to uh, believing these kinds of lies and things like that. Um, so I really, I really centered you know, black people who may not really understand the systemic nature of racism the the nuts and bolts of how civil resistance works to racism because we have been given these ideas about how progress happens by white people who don't even know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And so we get caught up in this cycle of thinking like it's our responsibility to walk individual white people out of their anti-Black ideas and to persuade them and to all that kind of stuff. So I want to encourage them to, that it's okay to walk away, you know, from people who are 
triggering you, microaggressing you, all that kind of stuff. Um, And that there is hope in the movement for black lives or, or even if it's not the movement for black lives, but there's, there's hope in people power, you know? Yeah. And that, you know, we can access that power together. Yeah. But I know that like, you know, I describe a lot of how these relationships imploded and I know that, you know, non-black people and white people, they'll under, like, there's something in there for them as well. But I really wanted to write the book that I wish that I'd had eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a friend who said to you, you don't write a book to express yourself. You write a book because you care about your people. Yes. And and that, that just comes through really clearly that yeah. you wrote the book because you care about yeah. your people, you know, the Andre from eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So you also say that the journey ends with joy. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about what joy means to you mm-hmm. as an anti-racist, as an artist. I wonder uh, what's bringing you joy today? Yeah, right now, music, you know, I'm listening to, I'm listening to Billy Joel again, because he is a genius um criminally so i don't think that billy joel should be walking around a free man for the things for the harmonic rules that he's broken in music um but i'm very grateful for him uh and his music and i've been listening to max martin as well a lot because he's one of the most successful songwriters in the world and he you know he just has it's crazy how relevant he's been since mm. Celine Dion, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, you know, and now still writing for Ariana Grande and all these people. Yeah. So listening to like these big, happy pop songs, you know, that's giving me mm. joy right now. I love that. Uh, what's next for you, Andre? Um, I have a bunch of music that I've not released yet. So after you know, after we see what's going on with the book, I want to get back into the studio and really get these things finished. I do have a few finished already um, because, you know, I've been really dealing with the toll of all of this work on my own mental health and looking back on my story and seeing how mental health has been a through line of the work that I've been doing for myself. So writing songs that I feel like are helping me get through, you know, some of this mm-hmm. stuff and I hope will help others get through it, yeah. you know, and um, I really want to carry this message of it doesn't have to be this way, you know, which is one of, one of my songs, <clears throat> but probably the thing I'm most known for saying um, into some other mediums, like some other mediums. Yeah. Mm. Okay. We'll have to stay tuned, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, where can folks find and follow your work and where can we get the book? Uh, best place to follow my work is my website, andrehenry.co. They can sign up for my newsletter there. I always send up updates about whatever I'm working on. Podcast episodes, new articles, new music, all this stuff, social, all this stuff is there. And people can get the book wherever books are sold. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your, I know, busy schedule to get this book into the world. I really appreciate this conversation and everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners, you can learn more at UpsideDownPodcast.com or Upside Down Podcast on Instagram. Um, as always, we appreciate seeing you share the episodes with your friends and your online communities. Thanks so much for listening.